the, the three-part message today is rescue. You know, God, God from the beginning had a plan. God's plan was to create a paradise for mankind. Literally, when he places Adam and Eve in the garden after six days of creation, the, the crowning jewel of his creation being humanity, uh, the first man and the first woman, and he places them in the garden, God, the perfect holy one, looks at his creation and says, this is good. Now, let me tell you, for God to say it's good, it was good. There was no blemish in God's creation. There was no death. There was no pain. There was no sickness. Everything was perfect. It was utopia. But see, God, in his justness, in his holiness, God decided to allow mankind to choose whether they would keep God's paradise or walk away from God's paradise. He said, Pastor Russ, I wish God didn't give man the choice. You know, part of me agrees. Part of me wishes God didn't give us the choice because we see the end result of that. But then the other part of me considers if God didn't give us the choice and if we didn't have the ability to love God in return by choice, then what would we be? Robots, slaves, kidnapped? We would be inhuman without a soul. And a soul without choice isn't a soul. So God, in his perfect knowledge, understood, I'm going to give man a soul. I'm going to give man a choice. I also know that in that choice, man will choose not me. He'll choose the other side. He'll choose chaos. He'll choose sin. He'll choose death. But God had a plan. And as man chose death over life, as man chose chaos over peace, as man chose suffering over perfection, God said, I have a plan. And in Genesis chapter 3, we are told that plan would center around a man. Now, we weren't given much information about this man in Genesis chapter 3. We were just told that this man would be born of a woman. And that this man would crush the head of the serpent. Who was the one that opened the door to sin? Satan, who was the one that led Adam and Eve to the other side. He didn't drag him. Adam and Eve, by choice, walked through that door from God to chaos. But Satan showed them the way. And God's plan said, I'll send a man to destroy this deceiver and return your connection to me. Of course, the Old Testament tells us much of the chaos that ensues in the world, of the death and the destruction, of the pain and the suffering. Someone recently said to me, Russ, why is it that God allows death? She's, and this person said, look, I, I get it. Sin, right? I understand. Because we're sinners, we got to die. But why so much of it? Why so much death and why so early? Like, if we got to die, couldn't God have made it so, like, at least we all lived full lives before we died? Why do the young have to die? Why do the innocent have to die? Why does family have to die? After thinking about it briefly, my response was this. This is what I'm going to tell you because many of you in this room are struggling with that same question. Why? You, you know the Bible answer, well, because of sin. I get it. But God could still punish sin and give a longer life. He could. So why? Here's what I said. Death is a constant reminder of our need for a Savior. 
if there wasn't death, if death wasn't as prominent, if death wasn't as quick, if death didn't just jump out of the shadows and take the ones we loved as often, we would not be reminded of our need for a Savior and be reminded that we're also on our way to death. God warned Adam and Eve of the chaos that would come. God warned Adam and Eve of the death that would come. But when they chose death and chaos, God says, I got a plan. He will save you. And the Old Testament gives us a fuller view of what would be called eventually the Messiah. The Old Testament prophecies tell us much of the Messiah and how he would arrive and what he would do and how he would reign victorious and be an eternal king. But the Old Testament prophets also told us of how he would die and how he would suffer for the sins of mankind because God's plan fit perfectly in the boundaries that God created. You guys remember when you were young and you'd play games with friends and they'd make up rules as they go? Drives you crazy, doesn't it? Maybe you were one of those friends. Parents are notorious for that, playing games with their children when you start losing automatically. Oh, here's a new rule. You don't want to lose, but that's not our God. Our God is holy and just, and he created the rules from long ago, and God created the rules, and God's not going to break the rules, even if by creating those rules, his plan required the death of his son. And so God's plan came to fruition in the man, Jesus Christ. I say man, but the son of God in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, came to earth, 2,000 years ago. And here's what we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God committed, that word committed means showed, illustrated, proved his love toward us. You know, there's a lot of people that think God is doing whatever he can to snatch your love and to, and to take your love and, for himself. And, and somehow uh, God is, is basically in a relationship with you. God is in your life for what he can get out of you. That is furthest from the truth. God is not manipulating you to take something from you. God is offering truth to give something to you. His love, his salvation, his presence, his peace, his promise of eternal life. God wants to give it all to you. It's like someone receiving a gift and saying, what do you want in return? All you're going to do is insult the giver. You ever been insulted before? You give a gift to someone, they try to pay you for it? Or the next time they see you, they give you a gift and you know it's just because they want to even the scales? (laughs) It's insulting. You gave the gift because you love them. You don't want anything in return. God So much better than any man, any woman gives a gift and he just wants you to take it. Unconditional love. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I see three quick points in this one verse. Point number one, God's salvation is offered through love, not obligation. God is not obligated to save you. God has no guilt attached to, oh, I better save them or I'll just, you know, feel really bad for the rest of eternity. It's not going to be a good time. No, God saves us because he loves us. God had a plan for our salvation the moment, the moment Adam and Eve sinned, God's plan was revealed. Now, of course, God already knew the plan. God's all-knowing. God didn't come up with the plan after the sin. 
God knew full well when I create, mankind's going to turn from me and my plan will have to enact. Which, by the way, means when God created the rules, he knew by creating these rules, my son will have to die. He knew all that. But God's plan was revealed immediately. He didn't wait. It was thousands of years before Christ did come to earth, but his plan had been given. And God's plan was given because God loves the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? He gave his only begotten son. God loved the world when he created it perfect. God loved the world when it turned its back on him. God loved the world when Jesus Christ was mocked and abused and suffered on the cross. God loved the world as the world persecuted his church over the last 2,000 years. God loves the world as the church himself, herself, itself has turned its back on God. God will continue to love the world during the seven-year tribulation as God casts judgment on the world for its years of sin, but that judgment does not eliminate God's love. Some people say, well, how could a loving God judge the world? Because God's not only love. God is also truth. God is also holy. And God must do what is right even when it breaks his heart. And God will judge sin even when it breaks his heart. And i got to tell you, his heart was broken that day when Christ died on the cross. We see the heart of God, Jesus Christ, on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We see the broken heart of God. God loves the world. Letter B, God's salvation is offered to sinners, not saints. God does not save the good. God does not save the perfect. There's no such thing. When Jesus Christ walked on the earth, he told people, hey, I came here to seek and to save the lost, those who are lost and know they're lost. He said, I came to heal the sick. He said, the healthy, they don't think, they don't realize, they don't need a doctor. Well, I'm the doctor, and if you don't need me, all right, fair enough, I'll go to someone who knows they need me. Do you know you need Christ? Do you recognize your spiritual illness deep inside because of sin? You are no better, you are no worse than anyone else in this room. We are all equally lost without Christ. We are equally suffering spiritually without Christ. He is the great healer. He is the great physician. He is the light of the world that leads us to salvation. He is the only straight, true, and narrow path to eternity. God. God's plan is our salvation. But our salvation is does not come because we're good. Our salvation comes because a good God came to a corrupt world to die for bad people. That's me and that's you. Why did Christ have to die? Because of the boundaries God set. God set the rules that sin requires a payment of death. Those are God's rules, not mine. And when God set those rules, he warned Adam and Eve of those rules. If you step out of paradise, if you sin, you must suffer the consequences of the rules I established. They chose to step out, and God said, now death must come upon the earth. But I got a plan, and I will send a Messiah to save you from death because you broke the rules. But for him, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to save us from death, he must do it by the rules, which requires death. So Jesus Christ died on the cross because of the rule. If you sin, you die. Jesus Christ did not sin, but Jesus Christ took the sin of the world on his shoulders and paid the price 
to satisfy, satisfy the rule established by God. Letter C, God's salvation is offered through Christ, not works. Let verse 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are not saved because we're good, and we're not saved because we do good things. We are saved because a good God came to this earth because of the rules we broke, and within those rules took our price on the cross and died. We are saved because of the work of Christ, not because of us. There's nothing you can do, nothing you will ever do to earn salvation, to get to God. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ says. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is no way to God outside of Christ. There is no way to salvation outside of Christ's work on the cross and your faith in it. Do you believe in Christ? Even the devils believe and tremble, we are told. Believing there's a God is not enough to be saved. Knowing Christ died on the cross is not enough to be saved. You must accept his work and say, my work won't cut it. I'm no good, but God had a plan. His name is Christ. And I will let Christ pay for my sin, and I will have faith that his death on the cross was enough to pay for my sin so that I could go to heaven through Christ just like he promised, because my God's not a liar. It's not enough to know Christ exists. It's not enough to know that he died. You must recognize that you're a sinner and that Christ is the Savior and have faith in that Savior to save you from your sin. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this reminder, and as we continue worshiping you, as we continue praying, as we continue through this uh, journey of the resurrection, I pray our hearts and our minds would be closer to you, that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. God has risen. In the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, quoted it earlier, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, not just some, not just the special, not just the churchgoers, anyone, whosoever believeth on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Anyone and everyone that believes, that calls, that places their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. Not might be saved, not would be saved partially, and then the fullness of salvation, you know, may or may not happen depending on how you lived your life. No, you are saved. It's a done deal. How you live your life on this earth will definitely have effect on what happens to you in this life, will definitely have an effect on your connection with God in this life, but once you are saved, you are God's. You are not holding on to God. If you are saved, God is holding on to you. And according to Romans chapter 8, and according to the book of John, God's not letting you go. There is nothing that will separate you from his love. There is nothing that can take you from his hand. You are his once you are saved. I see God's rescue of mankind. From the beginning, God had a plan. God's plan was man's paradise. Man chose chaos over paradise. 
Man chose sin over peace. Man chose suffering over health. But God had a plan. His name was Jesus Christ. And God's plan was to rescue us from our bad choices. To rescue us from the ultimate bad choice of sin. To rescue us from our lost, wandering path that took us from the loving, perfect arms of God himself. God wants to rescue you. The problem with someone who doesn't know they need to be rescued is they probably don't want to be rescued. Those who are lost in the wilderness and say, oh, I can get out of here. I know the stars, and I can watch the sun, and I can figure out where I'm going. They're not going to look for help. They're not probably going to take help. Someone comes by, hey, you need some help? No, I got it. I'll get out of here. They don't need help. They don't want help. They're going to stay lost. But when those who know they are lost meet someone in their journey in the woods who knows where they're going, you're going to say, oh, thank you. I am so glad I found you. How do I get out of here? But you have to know you're lost first. You have to know that you need to be rescued. And then Christ can show you the way. We saw a few moments ago God's plan. Now I see God's sacrifice. I see that Christ sacrificed three in three ways. And now obviously there's a lot that he dealt with, a lot that he went through, not just on the cross, but before the cross. He went through much. But I see three general sacrifices that Christ made. The first one, letter A, Christ agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane and offered his emotional sacrifice. For those of you that have been emotionally traumatized in your life, you know that's no small thing. Ah, an emotional sacrifice. Like, what is that, you know, emotional sacrifice? You know, I would say... That physical sacrifices, in my opinion, many of them are actually easier than the emotional ones. That what we go through physically, you can get some rest, you can get some vitamins, you can get some medication, you can overcome it, you can move on. Your body, in many cases, heals itself or learns to live with it. The pain you feel physically is not fun, but it's on the outside. You can mask it, you can ignore it, you can deal with it. The pain that's inside, that is hard to get rid of. Yes, you can still take medication. Sure, you can still ignore it. It's a whole lot harder. And the, the amount of medication, the severity of the medication you've got to take to deal with inner pain is a whole lot more, a whole lot more intense because our emotions are a lot more intense than the physical. Christ was willing to suffer emotionally for us. Christ was willing to sacrifice emotionally for us. Consider this. When we make a bad decision that we know hurts others, do you feel bad about that? Do you feel bad when you've hurt your spouse, when you hurt your kids? Do you feel bad when you've hurt a loved one? How would you feel if that decision hurt them on a regular basis? If you're a good person, if you care about people, it would hurt deeply. But you know what? That kind of pain, it does hurt. You know what's really hurtful, though, is when you suffer for something someone else did. That's real pain right there. Like, I get it. We feel bad when we mess up. The real problem is when other people mess up and it hurts us. You've been hurt by someone, one person? You ever had a pain that it was so deep, you literally, 10 years later, you are still hurting from that pain 10 years ago? 
You ever had a pain so deep that you have had to forgive the person 20, 30? You've lost count how many times you have forgiven that person because of the hurt they caused you. You know what pain is now. Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is going through pain that he didn't cause. Christ is experiencing emotional suffering that was caused to him not by one, not by two or 20 or 200, but by every single person that has ever lived or ever would lived, trillions of people. God is suffering because of what they did. (laughs) There's no way we can even fathom the amount of emotional pain Christ went through that night in the Garden of Gethsemane because of the hurt caused to him by every living soul. That's pain. And he suffered emotionally for us. In fact, the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 44, tells us, and being in agony, emotional pain, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, a physician. I'm not going to get into the medical side of this, but I've got to tell you, this, this man, Christ, he's in pain. He is suffering. It didn't end there, though, did it? It went from the emotional to the physical. You know the story. Jesus Christ was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane that night. He was arrested, betrayed, another pain on top of pain by one of those who was closest to him, as if he was not in enough pain already. How can... If you've been in pain by one person, you know what discouragement and depression is. You know how hard it is to get out of bed, right? To do what you got to do because one person hurt you. How can Christ even function at this point? How can Christ even stand up and walk, let alone take Peter and put his hand on Peter and say, Peter, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Put it down. How can Christ, in the amount of emotional pain that he is suffering, take the ear of the guard that had been cut off by Peter and place it back? How can Christ, in his pain, think of anyone else? That's exactly why he's doing this for other people. And even to the last moment, he is still healing the ears of those who are there to take him to his death. Christ is arrested, taken to the trial, a sham of a trial, multiple trials, people lying about him, pain on top of pain. In his trial, people spit in his face. They punch him. They blindfold him and say, who hit you? Pain on top of pain. The the crown of thorns, I'm sure, did not feel good as it went into his skull, but it was... Shame they placed on his head. They were mocking him. Pain on top of pain. They gave him a robe, not so he would look pretty, but to put more shame on top of shame and pain on top of pain. And then they said, carry your own cross. After they had torn his beard from his face. He probably didn't even look like a human. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, We read, 52, verse 14. And many were astonished or astonished at the, his visage, the way he looked, was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Christ's body was beaten beyond recognition, and here's where he offers the physical suffering. 
beyond recognition, Isaiah tells us, prophesies, the beating would be so bad, you'd look at him and say, is that a man? Who is this man? We can't even recognize this man. Pain on top of pain. Tearing his beard from his face, putting a crown into his skull, blood going into his eyes, pain on top of pain. Forty lashes with the whip, pain on top of pain. And then climb up the mountain to Golgotha, carrying heavy wooden cross on top of your back that has no skin left on it, pain on top of pain. But the pain doesn't finish there. Christ gets to the top. They lay the cross down. They put him on it, and they put nails through his hands, his wrists. They put nails through his feet, pain on top of pain. And then they lift the cross, and it slams into the ground, pain on top of pain. You don't usually die on a cross from anything other than suffocation. What happens is your body can't breathe properly, and so you have to lift yourself up. How Christ lasted hours on a cross, how Christ climbed up the mount to Golgotha, O'Herring oh, a cross, how Christ stood on his feet in the trials with the emotional and physical pain, I will never know. Because that wasn't just a man that day. That was God taking the pain of the world and saying, I will die for that. I will make that sacrifice. So we don't have to. Pain on top of pain. And every time he lifted himself and dropped, the cross would scratch what was left of his back. Pain on top of pain. And as he looks down, He sees just a few of his followers, John the Apostle, his mother, some of the women, and the hundreds that had said, we will never leave you, and the apostles that said, we will die with you, they were gone, pain on top of pain. But those that were there were there to mock him and to call him a liar And to call him a spawn of Satan, pain on top of pain. The man can't even die peacefully. And then, finally, finally, he dies. But not before he makes one more sacrifice. He sacrificed emotionally. Because when you take the sins of mankind, the hurt of all of humanity, I guarantee you, that's a deep pain no human could ever understand. The physical suffering he went through on top of the emotional, we can't fathom that. But there was one more sacrifice. On the cross is where he experienced the judgment of God himself. Christ played by the rules that Christ made. He's God. Christ made those rules. Christ suffered under the rules of his own boundaries and accepted the judgment for the sin he did not commit. And Christ experienced spiritual suffering. We find in the Gospels the final words of Christ. And different Gospel accounts give us different uh, things that took place. But I want to turn to Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 27, we are given the last phrase that comes out of Christ's mouth. 
Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of course, Jesus Christ says it is finished and gives up the ghost, but this is essentially the last phrase that he gives. God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Christ experienced on the cross. God the Father, who he has had an eternal connection with, judging God the Son, who did no wrong. And now Christ suffers the spiritual disconnection with the perfect, holy God the Father. Spiritual pain. That is not what we celebrate today. We celebrate his resurrection. But without the suffering, without the pain, without the sacrifice, there would not have been a resurrection. As Christians, we have a living hope because our living hope died on the cross for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the pain that you allowed Jesus to suffer on our behalf, the pain that Christ was willing to take so we did not have to. There is so much to be grateful for on Resurrection Sunday, so much on Easter to reflect. And I pray that our reflection would return in just the smallest part the love that you have poured out onto your children. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our final part of the worship service, rescue. God wants to rescue us. And if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you have been rescued. God has a plan to rescue. He's not just going by the seat of his pants. God had a plan before man messed up. And as soon as man messed up, God gave his plan. God revealed his plan. And his plan was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But that plan required God to make a sacrifice. And the sacrifice was heavy. The sacrifice was not just physical, as we so often think. The fat sacrifice was emotional. The sacrifice was spiritual. And the physical only made the other two so much worse. But it didn't end in sacrifice, did it? See, the greatest stories include sacrifice. The greatest movies have someone making a sacrifice. The greatest books, the hero sacrifices themselves or something they love dearly. But the greatest stories end with victory. The sacrifice wasn't given in vain. The sacrifice did not end in defeat. The sacrifice results in what the one who sacrificed sought to accomplish. And although we could mourn the loss of a fictional character, someone we've come to love in a movie, a TV series, we can be sad that this made-up individual died. Part of us says, oh, man, but look what they gained. Look what was done. How much more when the character is real? How much more when the character is God? How much more when the sacrifice was made on our behalf and how much more when the victory benefits you and I? And that is why 
We worship every Sunday because it is a victory worth recognizing every week as a church and every day as an individual. And so now let's finish with God's victory. Turn to the book of Luke chapter 24, verses 4 through 7. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. These are the women who came to the tomb. And we're told in verse 5, as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, why seek ye the living among the dead? The angel said, hey, why are you here? Christ told you he would raise from the dead, and he doesn't lie. What are you looking for? Why are you bringing spices and herbs and oil to anoint a body that's no longer here? For he has risen, for he is alive. Verse number 6. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying... The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. It needed to happen. It was part of the plan. For you to be rescued, Christ had to sacrifice. Letter A. Christ died on the cross that we might have victory over sin. It had to happen. If you wanted to have victory over sin, someone had to pay the price. Now, you could pay the price for sin... But for you to pay the price for sin, you have to die and go to hell. That's a price I don't want to pay. That's a cost too high for me. So Christ said, let me pay it for you. I can afford this. I will die, and I don't have to go to hell because I will defeat death and hell. You see, we're not God. So if we died in our sins, if we died uh, in payment for sin, hell takes us. But when Christ died paying for sin, hell could not take Christ. Death could not latch on to Christ. Death could not keep Christ. So Christ said, I got you. Let me take your place. Because the end game for me is different than the end game for you. You die in your sins. You die for sin. You go to hell. I die for sin. I beat up hell. I conquer death, and I come back the winner. Let me do that for you. But he did have to die. And he did have to die for us. And he did. And because of that, we have victory. Look, our victory over sin was not accomplished in his resurrection. Our victory over sin was accomplished when he said, it is finished on the cross. When he gave up the ghost, when he gave his spirit to eternity, that is when our sin lost. But it's not enough. Because you can have victory over sin, but if death still has a grip on you, you still cannot go to heaven because death will hold you. And so we find letter B, Christ resurrected on the third day that we might have victory over death. Verse 7 of Luke 24, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered at the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise Again, the third day, Christ arose, and that was when we had victory over death. As a Christian, you are given a guarantee by God himself 
that if you put your faith in Christ, if you accept, if you believe, if you trust in what Christ did on the cross and paid for your sin, God said there's another guarantee attached to it. By placing your trust in Christ to pay for your sin, you're saved from sin, and God says, I'm going to give you a bonus reward. (laughs) And the bonus reward is death no longer has a hold on you either. Christ accomplished both tasks. Christ had victory over both tasks in the space of three days. Suffering and dying on the cross, three days later, conquering death. And then letter C. Christ offered the Holy Spirit that we might have victory over the world now. You see, God loves you. God loved you enough to come up with a plan. God loved you enough to include himself in that plan and to sacrifice deeply for that plan to save you. And if God loves you enough to save you from sin, to rescue you from death, and to accomplish it personally, himself, then surely God loves you now. Surely God wants you to be successful now. Let me explain something. Success doesn't mean you're going to be rich. Success doesn't mean you're going to have all those dreams you've been chasing and God will just dump them on your your lap. Success is peace between you and God. That's true success. Success is peace in your heart that you have a promise from God that he will not take back. You know where you're going when you die, and you have a promise from God that he'll be with you until that day takes place. Christ said, I'll never leave you for nor forsake you. He told the apostles before he ascended, he said, hey, I've got to go. This is before he even died. He said, I've got to go because if I don't go, I can't send the Holy Spirit. And then before he ascended, he said, now go and wait for that promised Holy Spirit to come upon you. And he said, I will be with you to the end of the earth. <laughs> My presence will be with you. God says, I will not abandon you. I will not forsake you. I will not forget you. Because we can have victory over death. We can have victory over sin and still lose to the world now, today. The world can take your family. The world can take your joy. The world can take your focus. The world can take your purpose and swallow it up in darkness. The world can take those things when you can just give it to it. Some Christians, it's not snatched. Some Christians, they just give it to the world. Here, take it. It's yours. Here's my purpose. Here's my commitment. Here's my future Here's my family. Here's my joy. Take it. You give it to the world. You sell it to the world, not for the highest bidder, dare I say, to the lowest bidder. You sell yourself to the world. You sell out. There's no need. The world doesn't own you. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is all you need to overcome the world, to have victory over the world now. The pain that the world wants to bring in your life You don't need that. The destruction the world wants to bring in your life, you don't need that. The lies and deception the world wants to bring in your life, you don't need that. The misdirection the world wants to take you down, you don't need that. The darkness the world wants to envelop your brain, your mind, your thoughts in, you don't need that. The internal suffering and doubt that the world wants to implant in your heart, you don't need that. Oh, the world says, yeah, we've got so many great things for you. Come on over here, but it's a trap. You go and grab that great thing, and everything else comes with it. God 
is honest. God says, no, no, follow me, it's great. It won't be easy, but it will be great. God, saw, God says, follow me, and it will be hard, but it will be great. God says, follow me, and you will have pain in your life because it's difficult to do right, but you will have peace. You will have my presence. Follow me. The Holy Spirit will not leave you. God's given you victory. So, Christian, if you're losing, it's not God's fault. Christian, if the world has you, it's not God's fault. God didn't give you to the world. You sold yourself out. It's time to take back what belongs to God and give it to him. Look, if you've experienced what the world has to offer, then you're smart enough now to know you don't want it. Today, say, God, I'm saved. If you're saved, you don't need to be resaved if you're saved today. But today, say, God, I'm done with the world. I'm done chasing the world. I'm done with what the world has to give me. You get me out of this mess I'm in, you can have whatever's left. <laughs> That's the best I got, whatever's left. God says, deal, I'll take it. If you're not saved today, a lot of what I'm saying may sound foreign to you. I can tell you this, God will take what you've got, you. If you're not saved today, if you don't know you're going to heaven, God says, we can fix that. Christ already did the work. Christ already did the deed. You just need to accept his work was enough, ask him to save you, and the, the deal is sealed, <laughs> eternally sealed, done. You can be saved. If you recognize you're a sinner, realize you need a Savior, and Christ is that Savior, ask him to be your Savior, to save you from the sin that you got in your life, and trust him to do so through the work that he did on the cross, through his plan, you're saved. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Period. Not saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost. Not, not kind to save, but not, you know, depending on what you do the rest of your life. No, saved. And then you are God's. And God is yours. If I could everyone bow their heads and close their eyes, please. I appreciate you choosing Meriden Hills to worship the risen Savior. I appreciate the opportunity to worship with you. It's been a blessing to, to worship with you today. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands because, you know, I can't save you. <laughs> I will tell you this. If you'd like to speak with me, Pastor Jordan was leading the music today. Speak with Pastor Jordan after the service. We'd love to talk with you. Our wives would love to speak with you. If you'd like to know more about Christ, 